another episode of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and this is episode number 167. And today I'm going to be talking to James Cole Galloway, director of the Pediatric Mobility Lab and Design Studio and professor at the University of Delaware, and will reveal an unusual and inspiring way to unlock children's social, emotional, and cognitive skills. Now, a little background here. I went to the TEDMED conference last year, 2014, and it was in Washington, D.C., and uh, when I got my book, when I checked in, I was so excited to see that one of the speakers at TEDMED was a physical therapist. Um, all the other speakers were doctors, scientists, um, strictly researchers, and when I saw this Cole Galloway um, talking about something called Go Baby Go, which I had never heard of, I was super excited, and his talk was 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 great. It was inspiring. It was fun. Um, and so uh, it's been on my radar to have him on the podcast for quite some time. So I'm really excited to have him here. So Cole, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Karen. Hey, world. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Okay. So let's talk, before we get into Go Baby Go, let's talk about how your career evolved to where you are today, to being on the stage at Ted Men and to doing some of the great things you're doing. So how did you start? What made you, actually, first, let's do this. What, what made you want to be a physical therapist? Oh, I started out um, somewhere along in high school. I always liked athletics. I liked movement. I um, really... I enjoyed watching sports on television and live. I liked watching ballet. Um, I come from a, a combination of a musical and a scientific family in equal parts. And so I grew up sort of really enjoying science, but also enjoying music and the arts. And um, really in high school, I started to get really interested in going into the jungle and studying monkeys. I wanted to be Jane Goodall and, um, and study monkeys in the jungle. And... Somewhere along the way, somebody told me, you can't really have a family and do that, which was a complete lie. But I jumped over to, well, I really didn't want to study or work with people um, in something kind of more medical, maybe maybe a doctor, maybe a therapist. I went and volunteered like everybody else does and, and sort of understood, well, I don't want to be a physician. I really like this walking and sitting and, and bed mobility thing. That's kind of cool. And working with people with brain injuries, the brain was... Really interesting. I knew nothing about it. I just knew that it was really important and really a big mystery. And somehow you got able to, if you went to school, they would let you work with people that had injured brains. And I thought that was amazing. And you got paid to do that, which I thought that's pretty cool that you get the, the pleasure and honor of, of working beside somebody that's had a brain injury and seeing how the brain and body came back together and being a part of that. So I thought that's cool. So I, um, Went to the Medical College of Virginia for my physical therapy training in Richmond. And um, Ann Van Zant was my senior project manager. And I had lots of great professors, Dan Riddle and Bob Lamb and Tom Mayhew and Sheriff Anukin and Jules Rothstein, all these iconic mm. folks who now sort of lead the, uh, the APTA journals and, and sort of guide research and clinical application. And um, Ann said, just make sure when you choose things from here on out, Go where you, you don't think you belong because you think that everybody else is 
more sophisticated than you. Um, so, um, so I went to uh, work at Woodrow Wilson Rehab Center because I interviewed there, and they were amazing. And I thought, well, if, they, if they're stupid enough to have me, I'll work here. This, 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 these folks are amazing. And over two or three years, I worked there and got really interested in stroke and, and traumatic brain injury, especially the differences between um, arms and legs and the fact that after brain injury, legs then tended to do better, but I got frustrated with arms. And so I thought, oh, my goodness, um, I'm really frustrated with this arm thing. Um, and a good friend of mine went off to the University of Arizona for his Ph.D., um, a year before I left, and then I had to leave and go to University of Arizona too. And I thought, well, I'll just go and get my PhD and solve stroke arms, come right back to the clinic. And I went off to Tucson, Arizona, and for five years had more fun at a PhD than anyone, I guarantee, as, any, as anyone in the history of PhDs, more fun than anyone. I interacted with Gail Koshland and Doug Stewart and Andy Fugelvan, and Ralph Fergosi, and, and a bunch of other physiologists and people that loved rehab, whether they were rehab specialists or not. Gail Coxon's a, a PT-PhD that still lives in Tucson, who was my mentor. And I just had a very interesting, challenging time in which I wore t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops the majority of the time mm-hmm. getting my PhD. And it was just... I mean, I feel bad because I, got, I felt guilt, kind of like survivor's guilt. I got so guilt-filling after the PhD because I had so much fun. And we, uh, my wife and I, um, were then going to go off to a postdoc. And that's the two years that you spend after your PhD sort of rounding out your research training. Mm-hmm. I knew from work with Gail, which I loved, that I didn't want to work with adults. Mm. Not so much adults in terms of subject matter but, uh, or, or, or patients, but really the subject matter of adult reaching was too biomechanical. It was too engineering. It was too much simulations. I didn't have a great math background. I wanted to work with, again, with monkeys in the jungle, people in their real world environment. And at that point, a postdoctoral position came up with Esther Thielen. And many of us have now read Esther Thielen's work in pediatrics as she took nonlinear dynamics, the concept of how multiple factors interact for an output like behavior, and now it's become the majority uh, party theory in how babies learn to walk, how stroke survivors learn to relearn things. Um, anytime you're talking about multiple factors interacting in strange ways, you need to pay homage to Esther Thielen and her writing. And if people haven't read Esther's work, this is not just for pediatrics. Mm-hmm. She is an amazing writer. She's now passed away, but she's an amazing writer. Um, and if people want to get turned on to her work, please contact me. And there's a, there's a really classic book. Um, on dynamic systems, and you don't need a math background. This is conceptual. But I fell in love with with her and with babies and with this idea that um, behavior emerged, and it emerged as a solution to problems that were perceived by the organism. So I got my big girl and big boy theoretical background with her. I also got a strong challenge, which I'm still working at, about clear communication. Mm. What do you Um, mean by that? about thinking about things from um, the reader, the listener's point of view. Writers and um, presenters tend to have a, for example, a principle of building. I'll tell you a little bit at A, then B, then C, and then I'll end with Mm ta-da. As a listener-reader, 
you want the tada up front so that memory wise you have something to, to hook on the ABCD to. So I need to be able to tell the audience um, portable harness systems can advance the development of children with Down syndrome, both their walking and their crawling. Now I can go to the background, now I can tell you the methods, and now I can tell you the data to support that. But if I don't, you don't know the priority of the data, you don't know what to glom onto. Everything is coming at you at the same priority. Um, so same thing in writing, and she had a very formulaic Sorry, I lost you for just a second. Can you say that again? Writing was very systematic, um, in which a topic sentence, two examples, transition sentence to the next paragraph. And it's very simple and organized and very difficult because you want to have your topic sentence tell what the paragraph's about, then the two examples are more specific, and then the transition sentence should take this, that paragraph and and expound on it and connect lightly to the next one. Well, if you do that, um, and her writing is so amazing because everybody that reads her writing, whether they're a physicist, a, a very advanced engineer, or somebody like me that's just a user of engineering for conceptual, um, for applications to, to babies and sort of conceptual stuff, um, it's equally clear and poignant and important. And people still comment on how does she do it? How is she such a clear communicator? I don't. Pay, I never pay the price as the reader, and it's because she has. Okay, so can you um, give me a little bit more information on that idea of clear communication? Yes, it's so important. I think it's a new frontier for researchers and clinicians. Um, well, in fact, looking, looking and listening to you, you are um, that new generation of physical therapists that wants to communicate um, and connect with communities way beyond just one cubicle or one uh, magic medical building or one locale. You feel the need to connect planet-wide and have an impact planet-wide. And Esther wanted to do that too. And her, her, her writing is, is just a tutorial on clear communication. So if anybody wants to adult, pediatric rehab, not even an MPT, if you want to understand how to clearly communicate complex concepts, clearly communicating complex concepts. And you don't like the idea of dumbing down. You like the idea of translating. Esther Thielen was, um, was your saint. And her, her formulaic way was very simple but difficult. And that was in paragraph form in writing, it would be um, topic sentence, which we all sort of learn, topic sentence, which explains the topic of the paragraph, although she went further and was able to, with a topic sentence, give you the entire paragraph's take-home message. So that now the two specifics after that, memory-wise, physiological, psychologically, you can attach the two specifics that you're hearing now to that topic sentence that explained the entire landscape of the paragraph. And then after that, one, two, three specifics, which, by the way, if you don't have the topic sentence, you don't know where to put those. And memory-wise, they vacate. By the second or third paragraph, you're done. Mm -hmm. um, you can't remember. You can't hook it on. And then they got, and so she has topic sentence, specific one, specific two. Maybe they're examples. Maybe they're more details. And then transition sentence. This is the tough cookie. 
The transition sentence connects that paragraph with the next one by summarizing and value-adding the paragraph. That's hard. You just got through with a topic sentence that told the story. Now, two specifics that illustrate. Now, the transition takes that story and takes you into the next paragraph. But it can't overlap the topic sentence from before, nor can it overlap the topic sentence coming in the next one. It's devilishly hard at first to do, but when you do it, the reader is, whether it's a grant reader for NIH, National Science Foundation, mm-hmm. National Institute of Health, mm-hmm. Department of Education, whether it's a physician being convinced that your private practice needs more of his referrals or her referrals, whether it's a uh, proposal for community grant, whether it's a uh, pitch to Ellen DeGeneres to go on her show and talk about your awesome podcasts, whatever it is, um, in presentations or publications, uh, lay press or medical, um, you never want your listener to ever be lost or guessing. Um, and they're following you much like um, you're going down a path with a flashlight. And wherever you tangentially get off, they're going to follow you over the cliff. Mm. And so I've carried that with me, and it really makes a difference. Now, it pays me money. When Women's Day comes and asks for, a, for an article from me, number one, as a scientist, I say yes. Not every scientist would say yes. Um, anyone that has a, their mind on right would say yes. Of course. Um, that's, of course. Mil- that's millions of people that have connections to kids with special needs and folks with brain injuries. So that's two paragraphs, two paragraphs. To do the TED Med talk, they asked me in one sentence, give us the quote gift. In one sentence, tell us what you do in such a way that I would remember it for a year. Mm. So what, what yeah. did you give them? <laughs> Oh, my God, I can't remember. Uh, I think it is that I'm in the business of developing training and technology to advance the human right of mobility. Mm. Well, you know what? Something, I, something that I loved um, from your TED Talk was um, when you were talking about, you know, all these kids have the, the right to life, liberty, and was mm-hmm. it the pursuit of mobility or pursuit of, of I think it was mobility. Or pursuit of independence. In pursuit yeah. of independence. And yeah. and that I thought was was brilliant, um, and and you know we'll we'll Thanks. we'll get into that uh, a little bit more later, um, but talk about something that's I guess you know a lot of people will call it something that's sticky, I guess. There you go. There you go. Yeah, exactly. No, no, exactly. Um, so the postdoc for me, and I and it wasn't just Esther. Esther made everybody feel like she you were the next greatest scientist of all time. That's awesome. Uh, oh my goodness, she she uh, she deserves every every bit of um, well. She and Gail, I've been I've been fostered along by by very powerful women throughout my career. And in pediatrics, you're going to hang out with lots and lots of chicks. Mm-hmm. And um, and there are some ferocious moms ferocious scientists and ferocious clinicians that I've been uh, affected by. And, and Gail in my PhD, um, Esther as my postdoc, um, and other people after I went to Delaware. Um, so I went from, my postdoc was in Indiana, by the way, in Bloomington, okay. which is a beautiful, a beautiful place. And then we came to Delaware in 2000. And I came there because uh, John Schultz, who uh, ended up being a mentor to me and a lot of other people at Delaware, he was a, a professor at Delaware. He's just passed um, uh, a couple of years back from camp. He was a PhD PT. He worked in the same kind of area in adults that Esther did in terms of nonlinear dynamics. Um, 
he came and said, uh, gave a talk in Indiana and said, we'd love to have you at Delaware. We are the best research department for BT in the country. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that uh, in terms of funding and in terms of ideas, um, I think we can still uh, battle it out with USC and Iowa and, and Pitt and the other big girls and big boys. But uh, I came to Delaware pretty much because he was there and Lynn Snyder-Mackler and Stuart mm-hmm. Bender McLeod and Irene McClay Davis. Um, I was surrounded by these icons in their area. I came in 2000 and told people, I'll never leave. It's over. Um, and, um, and you've been the there time, ever since? I've been there ever since. And it continues to be an emerging job because the first five to seven years, I did traditional kinds of baby research at Esther's, um, in, in Esther's lab. I was with four and five and six week olds within a couple of weeks of getting there, and I knew immediately, oh, these are my people. Oh, you, found, you found your tribe. This is it, baby. This, you know, flapping to reaching, kicking to crawling and walking. Mm-hmm. Um, if you like developmental psychology and the emergence of function from nothing, the something out of nothing, um, I I was the luckiest bug. And again, I went from a PhD where I had just so much fun to a postdoc that was just. It was orgasmic. It was just it was just sick levels of personal people being personally invested in me. Um, I made deep friendships there. Um, I love the town, mm-hmm. um, the cookies, <laughs> the Buddhism, the the music. I loved Bloomington was a Berkeley in the middle of Indiana, um, and then we came to Newark, Delaware, situated between Baltimore and Philly, and settled in and and kept building our family. And my, my lab, I, I lucked into um, several of the finest um, graduate students a guy can luck into. Anjana Bhatt and Michelle Lobo now are PhD PTs in my own department. So they were rehired. They both have federal funding, um, multiple, multiple federal grants. Um, Jill Heathcock is at Ohio State. Um, Amy Lynch is doing outstanding work in Philadelphia. I, I've had nothing but um, Melinda Schreiber is a master's student out at Utah getting her PhD. I, I've been the luckiest guy ever to have people trip across me that were, they were downhill, man. They were, they're passionate about having real world impact and they do not want to wait. And so I've been surrounded by real world focused uh, professionals who want to gain knowledge and use research as a tool, mm-hmm. not presentations and publications as um, the end, but those as a means to an end. And this idea of you got to give up your clinical impact to go into research is crap. Mm-hmm. And I hope hopefully there'll be some listeners out there that go, I really would like to get a PhD, but I really get nervous about leaving the clinical, that you're your clinical rat. Your, right, your leaving that clinical, clinical world thing. behind. You do not have to do that. Some right. labs are going to be going to be divorced from reality. You don't. There's there's plenty of PhD PTs now, PhD OTs, mm-hmm. PhD language communicators, uh, PhD developmental psychologists or kinesiologists. You can find a lab. Um, you may have to move, but you can find a lab that does it your way and um, chart your own course. Absolutely, and you can get and you can get federal funding and get home at night. Right. Right. Um, and and. I, it's, I think it should be noted that getting federal funding is not easy. No longer. You know, it is not, it's not like you just fill out an application and they give you money. 
No, it's you know? a 10%. It's 10%. 50% are going to be triaged and not discussed at a study section. And uh, the top 10% have, uh, have a chance. You better be, if you're a Darcy Reisman, uh, Michelle Lobo, um, uh, Dan White, those folks that are in my, my department, they're having to score 7 6 5%. Um, I'm really proud of our department. We have all our faculty are federally funded. Um, or about to be federally funded. Most of our faculty have multiple grants, and we're in Little Newark. Um, the, the key there is having creative ideas. Well, hey, that's why we're PTs. We got right. creative that's ideas. Right. We were just talking off, off mic about mm -hmm. the need for a redefinition of conferences and that kind of stuff that takes into account the massive amounts of creativity that we have in PT that simply can't be squeezed to a poster session or a traditional traditional dissemination delivery. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 I mean, it's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with uh, getting creative. And, and like you said, most PTs are creative people. So to be that PhD PT and to use that creativity to infuse that into your, into your research and then bring it out into the clinic and bring it into the clinical world, I think that is like the... That is where PT should be. Yep, and you don't need to, uh, in my lab, I, I've seen enough examples now to sort of say, you don't have to leave the clinic to do research, and you don't have to even go into the clinic if you don't want to. If, if you're into home care, if you're into um, looking at people in harnesses that are in Starbucks like we, we are going to do, um, harness houses, kiosks that are made into cafes that have bodyweight support, um, do it. Design it, meet people that can do it. Um, they may be across the world, but they can build it for you in three weeks and ship it. Mm -hmm. Stop thinking about, you know, I'm only in Albany, I'm only in Berkeley, I'm only in Topeka. I can't possibly have done X, Y, Z. No, 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 honey. No, big guy. You, you can do it. You just have to envision it. So, so get a little crazy and then, um, you know, go ahead and do it. Yeah, and, and stop saying only. I'm no, only. Yeah. Or, you know, I read an article about um, the word just mm. and how so many people over overuse the word, well, oh, I'm just a PT. So right off the yeah. bat, you're kind of devaluing yourself, you know? Yeah, so, and you forget. And, and if you're in the medical model, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge fan of the medical model. I think it does limit uh, physical therapists. I think the buildings and the process limit the creativity innovation. You, you can't be innovative, in my experience, um, hanging around with people of your own ilk. Mm -hmm. You have to infuse it with people that have no business being around you and, and have them help you solve back pain and, 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 and uh, lymphedema and cerebral palsy gait and anything else you're interested in, clinical or research. You've got to in, include fashion designers when you're talking about bracing if, you're, if we're ever going to succeed at making things that go on bodies of, of special populations that you would wear as a typically developing person. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you get that, you get these aha moments, these tingly moments. And we're addicted to impact. PTs are addicted to impact. We feel pressure and anxiety. That's why we'll follow gurus even when we know that it's probably not the best thing to do is because on Monday morning, I still have Miss Jones in front of me, and if I go to a conference on Sunday and they tell me some pie-in-the-sky thing from a researcher or from a guru that's pie-in-the-sky, and I, I don't know quite where to put it, but 
I know Miss Jones is coming on Monday morning. And I don't have really anything more. I'll try almost anything. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to remember that is that the clinician is under, under the gun. They're the boots on the ground. And um, we have to answer clinical questions as defined by who? Well, as defined by clinicians, but I think we also have a proxy problem, especially in peds where the family is the proxy for the kid, the clinician is the proxy for the family. Um, and so it's, it's very difficult to do assistive technology if I'm an engineering researcher being the proxy for the clinician who's the proxy for the family who's the proxy for the kid. It's like a game How of I, telephone. Exactly. How am I ever going to get you what you need as a four-year-old? Or you can flip the process, invite the four-year-old in and have them participate in the process of designing. Mm. That's medical hacking. That's, that's user-driven. That's universal design. Um, that'll get you a, a one in innovation on an NIH grant. Right. Um, you know, so it all works together. And, and we love working with real people as BTs. Do that. And researchers out there, go ahead and work with the real person. Don't build something in the, in the lab that's so big it can't get out of the lab. Mm. So, so sophisticated it can't be used by somebody. Yeah, it's got to be practical and mobile and useful for the person who and needs to use it. And who would know that? The person who that, needs to use it. Exactly. But I have the PhD, so I should use the hypotheses. No, no. I should translate what the community needs, the user needs, the clinician needs, the funder needs, the greater public and society need. And then most scientists that are PT, PhDs, again, we're a creative bunch. We'll study anything to do with GATE. We're just in love with GATE. Mm-hmm. So let the community funders, clinician, um, user overlap and give a question to you that they all would love to see answered. You answer it and they'll all use it. Don't be the gatekeeper. Be the translator of what all those constituents need and then give them what they want and be famous and get funding and have people ask you how in the world did you need did you know that we needed you know this that how did you know that we needed a kiosk that had a body weight support in it? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what Anne wanted to do. She wanted to be in sales, but she can't stand and balance by herself. So how are you going to do it? What are you going to do is body weight support, but not over a treadmill. Right. So I asked engineers to build it. They built it in four weeks. Ralph and Steve Cope, wonderful people, built it. It's simple. I can't present it in an engineering conference. They laughed me out of the out of the hall. It's so simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that real-world interface. And that's where I think research is going, laboratory-grade data in the real world. And something that, that the, the client or the patient that you're working with wants to use. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it reminds me, so remember at TED Med, remember that woman, I think she was from England, who made those, like, really awesome um, uh, or prosthesis like they were yeah. all blinged out and some of them oh, had yeah. radios in them and secret compartments yeah. and for people yeah. with amputations. And the one woman was there and she said, well, if I have to wear this thing, I want it to at least be me. I if want I, it to I, be I, blinged I, out yeah. and look awesome and, and, and be unique to me. And so this woman, what was she? A, I think she was a fashion designer or an accessories designer or something, right? Yeah. Yep. She wasn't that, a PT or yeah. a researcher. Yep, that's that mixing of, and we we're team we're team oriented. We're it's 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 ours. This is the this is the generation of the the real world rehabilitation specialist. But I I have to say again, I think the new laboratory 
for the rehab professional, you don't find the researcher in the lab much. You find them in the living rooms and in the workplace and in the playgrounds and amusement parks and synagogues and grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they come back to the lab to prototype ideas. And I think they uh, strap on technology that measures monkeys in the jungle, frankly. And people right. are more and more right. doing this, but um, dosage, dosage, you got to get life dosage to be sticky. Um, sticky in your remembering, sticky in your, your new gait pattern. Um, and it's got to be out there in the real world and it's got to have a fun index of eight or above. Fun, things yeah. have to be more, you know, it has to be more fun than a cookie. Right. Well, especially when, you, especially when you're working with kids. Yeah, and I would even, I would push it to, um, to adults and, and really out of the world um, people like pitchers for baseball, you know, people that are under extreme stress, you know, the pitcher that says, I've got a torn rotator cuff. Um, hey, can you fix it in two hours? Right. Um, you know, people are under pressure. And I think Peds needs to lead the fun charge. But after a stroke, um, you need to be told that not only can you garden and not only can you go on a cruise, and not only can you date chicks and have fun, we're going to help do that however we have to do it. So if the PT needs to go on the cruise with you, if we need to develop technology that allows to do that, um, it changes funding models. Mm-hmm. Um, I think funders need to come out from behind the, the um, sort of the, the Wizard of Oz curtain and flag wave for things they fund. Right now in pediatrics, it takes about seven years, five to seven years to realistically get some kids into power wheelchairs. Yes. And it's a, it's a nightmare of a, of a way to do it. The flip side with our ride on cars and, and with the new generation, I hope it's emerging from the leaders in power mobility, of lightweight, relatively low-cost power-wheeled devices is the race car model where literally Blue Cross Blue Shield puts a giant sticker on that device to tell the world, we fund this, we sponsor this, much like, much like the Quaker State sure. you know, or the 7-Eleven race car. Um, we need to work with funding and funders who they, they are under stress too. I have to believe that it's anxiety producing for somebody to deny funding of a power chair because they're human and they know what they're doing. I don't care if they're not educated in medical. I don't care if they're following the, the corporate evil guidelines of deny, deny, deny. I think most people would rather give a child, give your grandma what they need. But we have to, we have to make it such that they get rewarded. They are spending money, either taxpayer money or their own corporate money, to, to put my child in a $25,000 power chair. Mm-hmm. At the very least, they should have a big-ass PR party. I mean, you know, we, should, we shouldn't fight funding and they shouldn't hide their, their money it should be much more of a corporate model of where we celebrate that Intel and Google are out there funding stuff philanthropically. I think we can do that in Pete and make it super fun. This, this playground funded by Blue Cross Blue Shield. Right. You know, this, well, this, and, it's this all about, and it's all about incentives, right? Exactly. So if you can incentivize a funding, then why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. And, and why and not make find- it a win for everybody? And options are key. When you only have an option for mom's discharge um, after a stroke to go 
either home if she's completely recovered spontaneously or with help, mm -hmm. or to assisted living if she can't stand and walk on her own yet. And there's no middle ground of, hey, let's take a very low-cost harness system and bang it into three um, rooms of her house mm -hmm. and have her walk around there. We only have two choices. It is depressing. But if I can yeah. send mom maybe home with body weight support systems there that don't cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, these are three to $5,000 units that go into each, each um, room. This is the harness systems that we're talking about, they are not uh, cost prohibitive. And they are also possibly obsolete devices in that you go in with 40% body weight support. By the way, you're making real Hanukkah food and Christmas cookies for real grandkids versus fake cookies in an OT gym, right. you know, an OT kitchen. You know, you're not walking up and down our stairs to nowhere. You're actually going to stairs to your grandkids' bedroom upstairs. Um, in your own home, and then it goes from 40% body weight support to 20% to 10, and you walk out. That is available today. Today that can happen. Um, and so dissemination now, like we talked about at the top of the show, mm -hmm. now dissemination becomes a rate-limiting step. And public health folks will tell you, dissemination is not, it's not the only thing, but it's almost the only thing after a certain point. It's almost the only thing, and dissemination is a science. Um, and so let's talk about, let's kind of back up for a moment. Let's talk about, because we were talking about harness systems and, and the mobility devices for, the, for uh, individuals who need it. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit more in depth. First, let's talk about Go Baby Go, and then let's talk more about the harness systems. So Go Baby Go, that was sort of the focus of your TED Talk, which was great. Um, so where did that come from? And can you give the listeners a little snippet of, of what you're doing there? Yeah, in, in original formulation, Go Baby Go came about because we had basically two robots um, that we were getting kids into. This is Amy Lynch's work. Um, and we're able to show that if you got kids that were pre-crawling, and you put them in a seated robot that was joystick controlled um, between four to six months, so before they're crawling. So you have no, you have no active um, experience moving your, your body around from A to B. You've been passively moved around a lot since mm -hmm. you came out of mom. But you got into these robots, and with a joystick-driven robot, um, 20 minutes three times a week, major Bailey scores, your cognitive language and motor scores, um, way ahead of kids that just got the normal enriched childcare environment. So everybody on the control group walked on time at 12 months on average, and the kids that got the robot 20 minutes a day, three times a week for six months, starting at, you know, before you're crawling at six months, um, walked early, talked early, thought more deeply about things and were, and were more easily using their hands to, to do object-oriented kinds of things, but yet they never practiced that. All they had was... You know, this driving around sort of an impoverished environment of a lab in a robot. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of bang for a little bit of buck. Yeah. How can it? Well, developmental psychology would say that, that that's exactly what happens with this cognitive and language explosion around crawling and walking. You begin to take your brain on a vacation, and your brain goes to uncharted territory and it gets addicted very, very quickly. And you're now not moving just to move, you're moving to go on that adventure. So when you look around your environment 
and you see those books and uh, that tape on the floor and that dead bug on the carpet that's outside your reach, you, your travel broadens the mind, as, as Joe Campos wrote. Okay, so can you kind of expand a little bit more kind of on that cognitive explosion when you're walking and crawling? And I don't think a lot of people even put those together, put two yeah, and two together. Yeah, because yeah, sometimes cognition, language, socialization, motor, you know, on the Bailey, which is a test that's common in pediatrics, they're separated. Well, in the baby, they're not, they're not separated. The baby doesn't come in with a memo that we're studying cognition or, you know, that we're studying motor. They come in and do behavior. So um, mobility is, is deeply linked with all the other domains, quote, unquote, that we study you at. But we, we chop you up in little pieces. But when you start to crawl and walk, it's not surprising why cognitive scores and language, um, the number of words you use, the social gesturing like pointing and and uh, and gabbing and and making eye contact more and joint attention that all skyrockets very quickly when you actually as a mom grandma dad brother pet um, you know why that happens and that's because um, uh, um, baby's on a rampage mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, you know a baby a little girl knows exactly what she wants and it's on the top of the refrigerator and the the dog is going to be hidden and there's going to be bananas in the DVD player. And oh, yeah. uh, mom and dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, totally. mom and dad, are, mom and dad are going to have some deep conversations at night about getting ahead of baby Karen, because baby Karen's uh, turning into a hellion, <laughs> exactly, into like a little terror. Exactly what you need. Mm-hmm. Exactly what you need. You are building independence. So what you see is that at crawling and walking, no mom is 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 shocked by the cognition. They'll they'll say, oh my gosh, Karen is coming on like. Gangbusters! She's changing every day. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, almost you like hear a, that a lot. Uh, yep, dads go off or moms go off on a business trip for a weekend, come back, and they're in tears because their baby. They can smell it. They can see it. Baby Karen is changed, and that rapid stuff. I'll, I'll just say the dark story. It's because of life dosage. It's because of the high dose number of events that baby starts to do something very amazing, which is called co-creation they start to lead their development. It's, it's one of the best things about independence is I can chart my own future. And it's not whether you're born in North Korea or America. It's not a freedom of, of uh, like we think of freedom and independence, but it kind of is. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pushing against the man. And it's where parents first begin to respect baby Karen as a separate entity. And so cognition explodes, language explodes, Baby starts going, no, 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 uh-uh, uh-uh, and starts hearing, Karen, come back here right now, young lady. Mm-hmm. And it's because your mobility is now being driven by a very quickly emerging processor. Baby has the most number of neurons in the, in the home, and the processor is the biggest and badass thing in the home. And that's why the cat knows it, mom knows it, mm-hmm. older brothers know it, and older brothers do not want her in my stuff. No. Because she knows where to find that stuff. How is she doing that? So, so we took these kids and tested it. Maybe it doesn't have to do with just the motor of crawling and walking. Maybe it's just your understanding about independence. Maybe in these robots, if you drove around a little bit with joystick, not walked and crawled, but just drove around, maybe we could, we could sort of um, trick that system into amplifying. And we got that. Oh, well, that's awesome. 
So there's no reason to wait until five, six, seven years old. Let's do power mobility for kids with severe mobility problems at four to six months. Everybody loved it, and everybody loved it to the point that they almost broke me in half. Because at the end of talks, what would they say? Great science. Where do I what? Where do I get it? Where do I get it? Where do I sign up? Where do I get it? Where do I get it? Where do I get it? And over six months, I frankly took a nosedive in depression because as a researcher, what was I saying? I don't, I don't build it. Yeah. We have two robots and there's 300,000 kids that enter into early intervention every year in the U.S. We can't get there from here. And interestingly, Karen, I, was, I don't think the academy perceived a problem. I don't think I really perceived a problem. I don't think um, that my senior research mentors actually perceived the problem. I think they do now maybe, but it was a little bit old school. Mm-hmm. As a researcher, I'm supposed to just meet you 50% of the way, maybe 60% if I'm really big-hearted. But I don't have a responsibility if I do certain work to carry it all the way through. And I've changed now. I think that I was, I was, I came back to the lab and I said, we're a fraud. We're dangling the possibility out in front of people and then pulling it back and saying, we've done all we can. And maybe that's, that's okay. May, I'm not a, a bioethicist, but I'd love to hear from people that are or advocacy lawyers or, or into that kind of um, ethical moral dilemma. Is it, is it ethical for a researcher to go halfway? Or is it, is it unethical for me to dangle in front of you that have a special needs kid that's three and four and you see them compared to typically developing kids falling behind not every year or every month or every week. You sense it every hour because of that dosage I said. Mm-hmm. And here this guy dangles that there are two robots out there. So people were scrambling to try to buy robots. Um, they were pressuring me to build. And David Glansman, who um, was a high schooler at the time, um, this is five or six years ago. He's, he's since then gone on to the University of Pennsylvania um, and probably has a stellar career at doing something amazing. I've got to catch up with him. Um, he and I went to Toys R Us. And I said, David, we have to build a car and we have to build it so that we can modify it for special kids. And we went to Joanne Fabric right next door in Wilmington. And then the dollar store was right next door and bought some pool noodles and kickboards. And that's basically the ride-on car that we offer um, uh, through 40 chapters across the world today. And we're doing... Um, three or four dozen workshops every year now where we teach families and clinicians to, to modify their own ride-on cars. Mm-hmm. We do about five styles of ride-on cars. Um, the industry's come back around because we gave it all away. We did hardware lists and videos and social media um, on the Go Baby Go web, website and the Go Baby Go Facebook. We just wanted to interconnect and get this out as fast as we can. There now was no rate-limiting step of having a commercial device. It was just give it away like the Food Network. Just mm-hmm. give, a rec- give them a recipe for uh, chicken alfredo and let Karen, wherever she is in the world, make her own and then ask her, if you make it with extra ingredients, can you turn around and share it with all our community? And that's how we get six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 people following our website, our Facebook. That brought industry. That brought Permobile, the leader, the world leader in power, pediatric power chairs, to go, wait, wait, wait. Tell us what yeah. you're doing. What's happening here? Um, excuse me? <laughs> what, what? You are getting a small army of grassroots effort. You give it away. You have now 40 chapters. We don't have chapters in the sense of 
association dues. You just raise your right hand, build cars for kids. You can be third graders in Canada, eighth graders in Mount Pleasant, Texas. You can be in Israel or Poland or Spain, or you can have BMW sponsorship in New Zealand and Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can build cars for kids. Um, you can be a super chapter like University of California, uh, University of Central Florida, or Cleveland State, where we're now running a National Institute of Health grant with Andrina Sabat and Madeline uh, Winland and the folks at Cleveland State, NIH went to fo- so far as to fund a first cycle grant, the first submission we hit. And they're funding the impact of ride-on cars on kids with Down syndrome to see if we can get them to walk on time. Instead mm-hmm. of two years, walk at one year. Mm-hmm. So um, this has come way far away. And Sam Logan at Oregon State is also leading the West Coast wing of, of Go Baby Go. And Sam and I... To be honest, um, it sounds kind of uh, sad, but we tried to end the Go Baby Go Ride on Cars and move on several years ago because we couldn't handle the influx of requests. And um, frankly, the world went, no, um, no, we need more. We need a sit-stand car where it turns on when you stand up. Mm-hmm. And so NIH funded the sit, stand, and power walk car where in one device, you sit, drive, stand, drive, and drop the bottom out eventually and walk around in a power-walking Fred Flintstone, and, and you walk away from it like Forrest Gump running out of his races. So, so this, is, this, is the, this is what people call pull technology where the world pulls it out of the provider uh, versus being pushed on, you know, getting two knives are pushed on you, creating the, the need. Um, and, right, and right now, Go Baby Go is... It's probably still synonymous with the ride-on cars, the modified ride-on cars. Right. Um, but now we're going into harness systems. Michelle Lobo now has So Baby So, where instead of bracing, she's putting uh, technology underneath high fashion. Her and Martha so Hall. S E W. Right. Okay. Right. And she's got NIH work that instead of an eight thousand, ten thousand dollar brace that goes on the outside of a child's arm and and basically screams to everybody, "Look at me, I'm a weirdo," and and go away. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at it from a fashion standpoint, like Martha Hall, um, Michelle's collaborator and fashion designer, all Martha had to say is, why would you put people in something like this that you wouldn't be caught dead in? Right. And all of a sudden, your head just explodes and you feel this surge of guilt that you felt back when you offered two robots and then said, I'm done, mic mm-hmm. drop, I'm out. Now, can you, uh, we sort of mentioned this earlier in the interview and, and talking about the suspension systems, but... Where was, could you give a little more information on exactly what those suspension systems are and, and the inspiration behind it? Yeah, they came from two, I mean, everybody in the PT world, of course, knows about bodyweight supported harness systems. You put a child or a teen, an uh, adolescent, a middle-aged, elderly person um, on a treadmill, give them some bodyweight support. And somewhere between 20%, 40%, 50% bodyweight support. Um, and people that have had severe issues like a stroke or maybe even post less issues like a hip or a knee issue um, can do a little bit more with that bodyweight support. It just takes the forces off. Mechanically, it's easier. For neural patients, stroke um, and traumatic brain injury survivors, Um, And other folks with neurological issues, it's not only easier on your muscles and biomechanics, it's easier on your your sort of sense of effort and your your central drive, how much brain power it literally takes to move your body. So we've known that for quite a while. And um, the situation there was, of course, you went into the building 
and tried to work on bodyweight-supported treadmill training. Um, in parallel, there's a lot, of inf- and a lot of information on that said, that's really good. You get stronger. Um, not always did you go off into the real world and show off that. In fact, there's some new data that suggests the more you walk at bodyweight-supported treadmill training, maybe the less you do in the community because you're tired or you're neurally fatigued or it's a little bit painful or something. And so you kind of sometimes flatten out um, the number of steps you do in the real world because you're working so hard in the outpatient clinic um, or in the research lab in the building. Um, The parallel set of literature is from animal work on enriched environments. And so if you put a a mouse or a rat in a bland environment and then study their brain and you compare that group of rats with a group of rats that are sort of in an exciting Vegas-style circus environment where there's a little bit of stress, there's a little bit of drama, there's a little bit of circus apparatus there, you can climb, Um, maybe the toys are exchanged each day um, and there's some newness and novelty. Um, You don't have to be a rocket scientist or a neuroscientist to figure out that that's good for the rat. You literally have to take their brains out and weigh them, and they will weigh differently. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about sophisticated measures. Mm -hmm. My brain is bigger than yours because I was in an enriched environment. When you compare those, and nobody's going to go and say that that making cookies, fake cookies I would call them, in a fake OT gym or going up and down the stairs to nowhere for a PT – or sitting behind a desk reciting words for a speech-language pathologist is enriched. So here we have a situation where we can provide you with bodyweight support and get you moving better, but we need to put you in the enriched environment. That was the inspiration. And we looked around and went, wait a minute, why don't we just do that? Why don't we just put harness systems in the real world? And we kind of thought like, Maybe this is like biblically, is there a biblical law against that? Is there a federal law against that? Why haven't we done that? And that's a really interesting question to me is why have we gone so long before someone simply put a harness system in a Starbucks and thought we need to have harness systems in homes and thought we need to have harness systems in nursing homes where 70% of people fall. Sure, and, sure. you know, that that's a very interesting question, sort of a meta-science question of why did it take this long? I have my, my, my sneaky suspicions, um, but for whatever reason, now we have the possibility to place harness systems. These are, for the most part, mechanical systems. These are dumb electrical, I mean, dumb engineering. For example, I can't publish our harness system work in IEEE, arguably some of the top engineering journals, I can't go to a conference, an engineering conference, and present on this work. That's how dumb this mechanics is in terms of the engineering. This is how simple it is. So we're talking about a very low-tech and engineering terms um, device, but check this out. It's so easy, and it's available today, that this is what you could do. You could become medically stable after your traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. Come out of the coma, become medically stable, start your acute care. And in my world, if I was so unfortunate to have that kind of accident, I would want as soon as possible for me to be up and about. So you could get out of your bed in, um, in the hospital once you're medically stable and have to make it down to PT. And you would hook on to a track 
and walk out of your um, your room. Now, you can't balance or stand or walk on your own power, mm-hmm. but you're able to go forward um, with with this body weight support. So you have to make it down to PT. That's in acute care or in rehab. Now, after rehab, the standard of care is you have a decision. And this is where we get to the next level. You have a decision of either if, if Karen is perfect to go home, great, you go home. Mm-hmm. If you're nearly perfect, you can't balance and stand on your own, and you have some family, you're going to either go to their home or they're going to come to your home. And the, the data is clear. Caregiver health is poured directly into your loved one. So that caregiver is going to take care of you at the expense of their own health. Right, right. Now, maybe you make it back to perfect and they leave your home or you leave their home or maybe not. That's one option. Number two option is you're not ready for prime time. You're not ready for um, going home. So you need to go to assistive care or a nursing home situation. And the trouble with that, of course, is that that costs funds. That costs money. Um, Goodness, I'm sorry about all this banging. Oh, that's okay. I don't know if you can hear it. Um, So let me back up. So that's the first option. The second option is you go to assistive care or a nursing home. The trouble there is, of course, it costs money, and you might be in a situation where if you do not get out of the assistive care or nursing home in a certain finite amount of time, you'll have to sell your home, pretty much assuring you to be in assistive care and nursing homes. What's the third option? Right this second, there isn't. That's the discharge conference. That's the pain and stress and anxiety for the loved one at your discharge conference. The trouble is... There is a third option. Right now, we could be putting harnesses in people's homes. You can bang them into the ceiling, track-based. You could do a three-dimensional harness system like we've done for kids in, in one room, two rooms, or three rooms. And literally, your mom or you, whoever's having the stroke, could go into their home with a safety harness that also has body weight support. That's the assistive device, but check this out. It may not be a forever device. You start at 40%, making your own cookies for your own grandkids in your own kitchen, getting sent to your own room as a four-year-old because you're a jackass, and mom said, don't do that, and you just got sent on timeout. But I don't walk, and I can't balance myself. Yeah, but you can still get your happy ass up the stairs and go to, go to your room because that's not how we act, right? So that's the, that's the vision, but that's 40% body weight support then the 30% body weight support, and then you turn the system back in. It's going to change, and I think the thing that's going to change is two things. We need to show some research very quickly, Mm -hmm. so we need to get some funding for Harness House. And I think we start with a 20-pound payload of a four-month-old with Down syndrome. We get sponsorship from GoPro. We get donations if we have to. Federal funding is a little bit slow for this. Um, so we need we need downs. Uh, I mean, we need um, donor support and GoPro to come along with us. Um, I've got donor support. I'm working on GoPro, and I talk to NIH tomorrow about this. So we need a situation where we have harness house for kids. It's a mechanically simple system, and then we're going to explore um, instead of a 20 pound payload, a 200 pound payload, and we already have that lined up too. The young lady, Anne, who is in the Nation Swell article on harnesses that just came out, mm-hmm. she's just gotten some approval from her family. I've got to talk to the engineers. If they say fine and her condo lets her, she'll be the first adult that goes from a harnessed condo living to a harnessed workplace training in the cafe. Right. And then she, in the afternoon, goes to harnessed ballet 
at, um, at the Y. That's the vision. And the, the thing I want people to realize is that is not a promise for the future. That is available today. All we have to do is show that. And if we calculate cost-benefit ratio, mm-hmm. holy moly, you can just envision mom going home on a device that doesn't stay forever. Versus going to a nursing home. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. Can you calculate? Also, yeah, lots also, of money. And, and that's just the most severe examples. People start thinking about these harnesses, and it's so easy to envision it. It's easy to get carried away. Very quickly, people say, well, wait, wait, wait. So the little, the little, the little seats that you go up and down your stairs with, mm-hmm. I can ambulate completely fine on level. I just can't get up my stairs. Well, they have a harness system that just goes up mm-hmm. the stairs. Yeah, that well, makes wait, sense. Wait, wait, wait. What about mom who's starting, she's, she's completely independent, but she's starting to slow down and she's starting to get fearful of falling. Fear of falling, along with medications and three or, other, three or four other factors, come together to limit a person's ability to explore. So jump in there, put the harness in for a time, get her strong enough as part of her outpatient slash home therapy, remove the system, buy her a couple of years more. Mm-hmm. As soon, and, and what I love to do is then to go, or you can return to standard of care, which is right now. Either you're perfect and you go home, or you're not perfect and you go to nursing home. Mm-hmm. Or you come three times a week to a magic building as an outpatient and work on bodyweight supported treadmill training. All of a sudden, it's such an easy switch. And when you see the systems, engineers laugh. They're like, that's the stupidest thing I ever saw. It's so simple. We're talking about around $5,000 for an apparatus per room or the 10 by 10 kiosk. Mm-hmm. So we're not, we're not talking about things that need to, uh, to wait. And that's what I'm hoping to do is to get the message out that um, whether it's research, the cafe and that kind of stuff, this needs to be copy and pasted all over the country. So if your listeners want help in getting a harness in their home, in their school, for ballet, in Starbucks, in their location, not only I, but there's a cadre of other Go Baby Go chapters that will help them do that. We'll help raise money for you. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll do whatever we can to change this because I envision in, in a very short time, two, three years, which is kind of long, it needs to be standard of care mm-hmm. that you go in, you know, I envision you and I leaving after they tell your mom um, that she's being discharged after a stroke. And the three of us go into, or you and your family go into a Lowe's or a Home Depot with a voucher that the hospital gave you mm-hmm. that says you need a three-room system for a 150-pound lady. Mm-hmm. And you go and give it to the guy, and he loads up the equipment, and then you sign up for the guys to come out next week, and they bang the system in. And mom goes home next, next Tuesday and you visit her on Tuesday afternoon, and she's getting to know how to walk around her place, whether it's a ranch or even two stories. Mm-hmm. And um, the garment, by the way, the, the harness that we have right now, the interface mm-hmm. with human, has to be better. It's nasty right now. But that's our functional fashion wing. That's Michelle Lobo's work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, you know, that's not someday we'll go in the moon kind of thing. That's right this second. I'm about to put my uncle who's had a serious stroke mm. um, in one of these units because he does, he's not mobile, he's not terribly vocal, um, but over the last year and change, he's gone down quick. And we already know, you know, four days and connective tissue starts remodeling. Sure. So that's that vision that I, I want to get out to people, that it's not pie in the sky. We're not talking about someday a future world. We're talking about systems right now. 
And people can go, where can people find more information on this? At the Go Baby Go site? Or? They can go to the Go Baby Go site. They can contact Ralph Cope at Enlighten, E-N-L-I-T-E-N-L-L-C. And uh, they can overwhelm Ralph with, uh-huh. <laughs> with, with requests. requests. <laughs> and they can get to me and I can get to Ralph. Okay. Um, we want to make Ralph's um, last couple of years before retirement um, as busy as possible. Sure. And what about for people like with spinal cord injuries? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, we'll work with anybody to help them. We, we've really jumped into the lifespan mobility and design studio business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of pressure on therapists that work with spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. Um, walking is um, attainable for some people and not for others. And walking, of course, is, is more than just steps. It steps on a treadmill all the way through community ambulation. So there's a lot of, of political and emotional and celebrity and technology pressure on rehabilitation professionals mm-hmm. with spinal cord. A little bit more than maybe stroke uh, or TBI um, because it's very much in the limelight of walking. Sure. Uh, so I think, these, uh, I think these apparatus, these devices of harness systems can come out of the clinic, out of the medical model. We need dosage. And what we call what we talk about is life dosage. I need you to go from a harnessed house to a harnessed workplace to a harnessed gym. I'm a runner. By goodness, after my stroke, I'm going to run around a track that has a harness on it. And this is the dumbest first generation. This is you know the first time in the moon. Um, we need to get engineers and third graders and everybody in between really excited about rehabilitation technology. Really excited, not not hundreds of millions of dollars spent on rehabilitation robotics that never make it out of the lab because they're too big to make it out of the lab. These need to be designed for for what PTs would say they need to be designed, and OTs and speech language professionals, the real world environment. Engineers and and PT professional researchers and clinicians need to go out in the real world and generate devices that can generate laboratory grade data in the real world. That's very exciting. NIH is is sitting there begging for innovation and significance at that level. Um, this is a really bright future for, for physical therapy researchers and clinicians. And for clinicians out there, researchers need you. You have a database in your head that's very, very valuable to us in research. I am not a clinician. I wouldn't know the clinical reality if it bit me, right? Mm-hmm. I have to partner with these other people. So if you're interested in research, Get to your latest and greatest lab in your area. And if they laugh at you, contact me because I'll probably hire you. And smarter researchers will also take a clinician that's interested in research. There's a place for you in research. You don't have to go back for a PhD unless you want to. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's a place for that database and your ideas, your innovation. Because there's a place for fashion engineers, which isn't even a thing yet, but we're sort of generating it. There's a Because mobility is a human right. Um, it affects all aspects of life, and PTs are right there. It, I, I bet, I hope, and if I came back in 50 years, physical therapy, the name itself would have changed because we're much more than physical. You yeah, know, I agree. We're, we're something that, I mean, I, all master clinicians have seen this. I've seen this in so many master clinicians that, for example, we were talking about pain off, off air, mm-hmm. and I mean, pain is a, pain-free life is a human right, too. Absolutely. You know, so PTs are in the business of, of human rights, and we need to be an activist and an advocate. Um, so I love it. I love where the future's headed. This is going to be great. Yeah, and I mean, I, 
you know, it's listening to you speak is so inspiring. And, you know, I'll post the, uh, the video of Amy, right. Working at, in the kiosk. Yeah. Um, because that was really amazing. And, and I think it'll give people a better idea as to what these, um, harness systems are like. And, you know, in, in my mind, it's just so thrilling. Like I'm, I was so thrilled for her Yeah. that here is this woman who had a traumatic brain injury many, many years ago and she wants to work. She yeah. wants to go out. She wants, I mean, that's just being part of society, right? And, and this gives her a way to do that. And it's very moving. And I'm sure like if I were her, I would have been like sobbing like a baby the first day because yeah, here would, I it, am kind of doing what really what I want to do that a lot of us take for granted. Yeah. And she, um, she went and interviewed for or applied for a um, position at her favorite coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Um, unbeknownst to her family or friends, except for her personal assistant, she just went there. Mm-hmm. And so Debbie, her mom calls me and was like, what the what? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, Deb, uh, this, is, this is what independent women do. Yeah. You know, they get out and they, uh, you know, they snap necks and cash checks. This is what you do when you're independent. And, and Anne had a significant brain injury. This was not a small injury. Her Glasgow was in the severe range at admission. Her MRI was a nasty looking MRI. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's special in a lot of other ways, and we hope to do about 10 or 15 other people. And the other thing is that there, there are other cafes going up around the world. Um, University of Central Florida, I expect one to go in Kansas City soon. Um, we're going to try to power NIH to uh, get behind us and uh, put maybe five or 10 across the country. And really, it's, this is too easy not to give away. I'm going to try to pressure Ralph um, to keep the price down. And to place these not so much in major medical centers, but in major community areas, mm-hmm. areas that where there's really high activist community efforts, which often go with great rehabs. But um, this is also the counterculture thing here is users taking back some power. And uh, the, uh, we had some trouble with uh, the kiosk and it got shut down by our city council Um uh, the fire marshal came in and said, you can't do paninis with that kind of awning, which I think was totally legit, but they were slow for Anne. She contacted the governor and said, they shut me down. Well, how did she contact the governor? Well, the governor had been with her on one of the photo shoots mm-hmm. and um, knew her by name. And she saw him at an event where she was serving ice cream in a kiosk and called him over and went, they shut me down. He made a few phone calls. I got a call from the dean saying, what have you done? I'm, you know, and I was like, it's not me. This was Anne. And of course, my dean was like, absolutely, that's awesome. So that kind of user empowerment, that's what you really get tingly about is, wow, now you're co-creating your own future. Mm-hmm. And, and, and these harness systems can be banged into food trucks. You know, we can start getting really creative about what we do and when we do it. Um, there are neonatologists that start talking about um, small harness systems in the NICU. Um, um, so it's it's really interesting. And PTs are at the forefront of this. PTs are being asked to um, do things we're not trained at at all, but, but because we've gained experience. So yeah, absolutely. We have the that real world experience to 
to bring to the table, you know, because we've worked with these patients, we know these patients, we understand their struggles, and I think it's really important to be, like you said, at the forefront of this, all this really great ingenuity. And we're not afraid to touch people, and we're not afraid to think about people. And so that science-social combo Mm -hmm. that we look at, we look for in applicants to University of Delaware, and we look for in great BTs, it's... You know, it's it's exciting time. We have to parlay it into something. We have to take control and take charge and, and partner with communities. And that's what I love about this, too, is that you can't really have a – you can have a harness without community, but you can't have a cafe sure. without partnering with other people outside the medical bubble. I love that. You know? Yeah, it just – it kind of just brings everything sort of full circle and, and the – what it does for for the people using the harnesses, I think, is immeasurable. Yeah, it's fun to see. It's yeah, fun to be a part of it. It's, it is. it's a real honor to be be a sideline. I think a lot of PTs think that way, that whatever their niche practice is, it's an honor to work with athletes or people sure. in pain. Or I, I feel it's an honor to work with brain injured individuals. And just that, you know, that feeling of you get paid for this. Wow, I do this for half half off. Right. Um, that's a great. That's a great feeling. And then. That powers you to do extra stuff like your podcasts and, and our advocacy work. It, it gives you that energy to go beyond. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, we have to kind of wrap things up here. Um, so I guess the last question for you is what, do you, what are the big takeaways here? What do you want the listeners to remember? Probably to just remind themselves that, that if you're a PT or somebody that's working on assisting people in mobility, you're working on a human right. Um, don't stop at muscles and joints. Go way beyond that. You do need to be stronger and you do need to be more balanced, but you have an obligation to carry that further. If you're a researcher, don't get caught like I did where we you, you dangled a future in front of somebody with two robots saying that kids could drive much earlier than they can. And then say, yeah, but this is where I end. That's actually a form of fraud to, to dangle the future in front of families and kids and then go, I got to, you know, that's all I can do. I can't see it to the end. Yeah, you can. You, you can go bigger. You can go planet wide. Um, uh, to new grads, uh, just go faster. Don't accept the system the way it is. We, we, um, and if you don't understand what I mean, duct tape your mouth closed and your ankles together for just an hour or two next Saturday and just think about what immobility really is about mm. um, think about what immobility really is about and um, and then find what you're passionate about and and go 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 because because people need you people that you've never met you know we all work with strangers you need to intersect with those people in the future um, and the students, that's why you're working, right? That's why you're working so hard. Not for you. It's for those strangers that you're going to intersect with in the future. Uh, they don't even know your name. Um, that, that's, and I, I can't wait to see in my own work, um, we got to move faster because there's kids sitting right as I talk. And if I don't work smart and fast, uh, we won't get to them. And um, if your day job, by the way, is not fulfilling, quit it and go work somewhere that you would work for half price. And if you work with kids and harnesses and that kind of stuff, call me. And I'll either hire you or we'll find mm-hmm. some money for you. And, um, I, you know, at, at the very least, respect what I do enough to steal it and <laughs> make it your own. Well, you know, everybody, uh, Cole Galloway. Cole, thank you so much for coming on. This was 
a great interview and you know you're very inspiring and I hope that we've inspired a couple of people that are listening to this podcast so thanks so much for joining you bet thank you Karen all right and everybody thanks for listening have a great week and stay healthy wealthy and smart 